You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, a few years into our marriage, Laura and I went on a vacation of a lifetime. So we started in Rome and it was amazing. And then we went to Florence and it was amazing. And then we got to Venice and I'm just seeing all the scenes from Indiana Jones, all of that going on there. and, And that in Venice is where it started. And it started with me looking at Laura and saying, you know what, I'm not feeling great. Uh, Not a big deal, but I think I'm gonna go to bed um, early tonight. It was like 7 p.m., we're in Venice, and I am in bed, sleeping. And uh, so we did that. Then the next day, uh, we uh, went to Milan, which is awesome. And it got even worse. It went from, uh, gosh, I'm not feeling great to, I don't know when it happened or how it happened, but there is an invisible knife sticking into my side right now. It's, it's terrible. So it uh, made it impossible to eat. It uh, made it impossible to stand up straight. Um, it reacquainted me to the horrors of dry heaving. It was just terrible. I mean, my life was, was miserable. Uh, then the next day we uh, left and went to Interlaken. Switzerland, and, uh, which is amazing uh, as well. All of these places, just amazing. And, uh, and by the time I got there, uh, it had, had been at work uh, to the point where I have one and only one thing on my mind by the time I get to Interlaken, and that's survival. How am I gonna make it through whatever this thing is? It had totally taken over my life. And I remember the moment of uh, Laura looking at me and saying, I'm not gonna let you die in Europe. So she calls the doctor, it's like 9 p.m. and by the grace of God, a doctor answers and meets us at his office. And I stroll in. Now just imagine you being him for a moment. I, I come in and, uh, and I tell him all the things. I mean, I am miserable, everything is going terrible. I can't stand up straight. I look at him and say, I think I've got a knife in my side. I know you can't see it, but it's right here. Uh, I, I tell him all the things. And in that moment, the doctor has uh, the first and most important thing to do. And that is to figure out what is going on. It's an accurate diagnosis. That is the first and most important thing. Uh, Because until you get an accurate diagnosis, you cannot apply the appropriate solution. The first step is accurate diagnosis. Now, the doctor could have looked at me and said, uh, okay, I think I see the problem. Um, I think the problem is you're a sissy. And uh, we've we've got a pill. People have been using this pill for centuries. It's called suck it up. You probably got to take a couple of those. He could have said that, but he didn't. He could have looked at me and said, you know what the problem is? The problem is uh, the pain that you're feeling and the nausea. Uh, we've got medicine for those symptoms. So we can, we can address the pain and nausea. We'll give you some pills and we'll make you feel better. He could have said that, but that's not what he did. He poked around for a moment and then he looked at me and said, this is your appendix. And this has been going on now for like three days. So it's likely about to rupture. So you've got to get to the hospital right now. And uh, the doctor drove Laura and I, at 9 p.m. in his doctor's office. We go out to his car. He drives us to the hospital. And from that point forward, I've always been able to say, there is a part of me buried in the Swiss Alps. <laughs> There's a part of me that's, that's still there. Now, in the same way, in your life, 
when it shows up, and it can be a lot of different things. Um, it can be worry. It can be fear, anger, bitterness, resentment, pornography, habitual overspending, obsessive oversaving. I mean, it, it, there's just, it can have a million forms, all of these sort of disordered behaviors in our life. When it shows up, the first and most important thing needed is an appropriate, right, accurate diagnosis. Now, this is what we spent two weeks ago on. Our problem, when it shows up, our problem is not out there. Our problem is not those crazy people over there, this crazy person over there. You wouldn't believe what they, our problem is not out there. Our problem isn't even our, primary problem isn't even our behavior. Our primary problem is our heart. The source inside of us from which all of our actions flow, our heart. This is why we said in week one of this series called Formed that the heart is the location of formation. It is, if we're going to be changed by God, that change happens at the level of our hearts, the source inside of us from which all of our actions flow. Uh, but we also said that week that formation is a fight. This is why biblical wisdom, uh, wisdom Proverbs chapter 4 tells us, above all else, guard your hearts, for from it flow the springs of life. There is no neutral day. You will never live a neutral day. Every single day of your life, your heart is either being reformed to reflect Jesus reflexively, or it is being deformed to reflect the world reflexively. But those are the only two options. It's, it's either reform or deform every single day of your life. Now, if the heart is the problem, not our hands, not our behavior, but the heart. If, if, if the heart is our problem, then we need more than good advice. Here's nine steps to deal with your anger. We, we need more than good advice if we want to see our hearts change. If our heart is the problem, we need good news. This is where Jimmy took us last week. For, for our hearts to change, for our hearts to be formed by the person of Jesus, we have to, to first see, our hearts have to, to come awake and see the person and promises of Jesus. So in light of that, that's the first thing that we need if we're going to be changed and formed. In light of that, we're spending this week and the next three weeks considering these things considering the person and promises of Jesus. We're going to hold up four promises that just flow out of the very nature and character of God for all of us to stare at together. And then we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit will do his work in us, forming and changing our heart as we gaze upon the person and promises of, of Jesus. So with that said, today is coming in, uh, in two steps. It's really two questions. So here are the two parts of today. Part one, who is God? Part two, why does it matter? Part one, who is God? Part two, why does it matter? So let's take part one, who is God? Now, I'm not gonna say everything there is to be said about God right now. What I'm gonna do is say one massively important, huge thing about God. And here it is, who is God? Here's one thing we can say to answer that question. God is great. God is great. 
Now, to uh, sort of unpack that phrase, God is great, I want to go to Isaiah chapter 40. If you've got your Bible, make sure that's out and open on your lap there. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah comes to us in two parts. Uh, The first 39 chapters of Isaiah is about God's discipline. It's an expression of God's discipline to his people. Uh, Then the second part of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66, is all about God's comfort. In these chapters, God is using Isaiah to remind the people of Israel that God is with you. He is not done with you. He is, no, he is for you. He won't abandon you, quit on you, give up on you. But I want you to notice how this section of scripture begins in verse 9. Chapter 40, verse 9. Isaiah says, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. You want comfort, here's where it's going to start. Behold your God. See your God. Stare at your God. Behold your God. Isaiah wants you to see and behold some things about God. Now, what does he want you to see first? Out of all the things that he would want you to see first, here is the thing. You're going to see it. If you've got the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is the the version we, uh, translation we most often use um, here at Stonegate. If you've got that translation right above verse 9, you're going to see the theme. You're going to see the thing Isaiah wants you to see first about God. Behold your God. Look at this first. Right above verse 9, you're going to see the theme of this chapter. The greatness of God. That's what Isaiah wants you to see. The greatness of God. Now watch how Isaiah describes God's greatness. First, he says God's greatness is beyond comparison. You see this twice in this passage. Look at verses 18 and 25. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Isaiah is saying that there is no metaphor that really does justice to who God is. There is no language I'm going to use that's going to accurately describe who God is in his greatness. The greatness of God stretches language beyond its limits. It's similar to what the psalmist says in Psalm 145.3. He says, God is, or great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Now, the psalmist is not saying you can't explore the greatness of God. That's not the point. His point is you can explore it for the rest of your life forever and never come to the end of the greatness of God. It's his way of saying that our finite finite minds will never get to the end of God's infinite greatness. But Isaiah has more. God's greatness is beyond comparison, but he goes on. God's greatness, you see it show up in his size and splendor. God is great in his size and splendor. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and marked off the heavens with a span. Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in in a balance? He's just using some metaphors here. He uses the metaphor of God measuring the waters. Uh, Roughly 70% of the earth's surface is covered by water. 
roughly 70%. And the average depth of the ocean is a couple of thousand feet deep. So when scientists kind of put together an estimation for how many gallons of water exists on the planet, they estimate over 300 million trillion gallons of water. Now, I don't even know how much that is. That's a lot of zeros, right? But Isaiah says it all fits right there in the palm of God's hand. Isaiah says that God's marked off the heavens. Uh, the next time you're out at night, just take a moment to look up. It is mesmerizing. It is amazing to see the vastness above you. Uh, the universe is so vast that we use light years, light years, to, to try to measure how wide things are in this vast universe. Now, when I think of fast, I think of um, something like Usain Bolt. He's fast, isn't he? Uh, he set the world record several years ago. He ran 100 meters in 9.58 seconds, a tenth faster than any human has ever run 100 meters. But now think about this. By the time he finished that world record-setting race, light had traveled around the planet 74,400 times. That's fast, isn't it? And scientists, they estimate that the universe is 156 billion light years wide. Again, I, we don't even have like a way of comprehending how wide that is, but here is what Isaiah is saying. The, the Lord just marks that span off with his hand. It's just from here to there. That's how, that's how wide 156 billion light years is. Isaiah says that God has weighed the mountains and the hills. I don't know when the last time you have driven through the Rocky Mountains is, but it is, it is awe-inspiring, isn't it? Just, just the size and scope of those mountains. But Isaiah is saying the next time you drive through the mountains, don't be awed at those mountains. Be awed at the God who, who can take those small little mountains, put them on his scales, and weigh them. Be awed at that God. And just to show us the distance between God and man, look at verse 22. Isaiah says, it is he, it's God, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants. In other words, you and I, he says, are like grasshoppers. That's humbling. Like grasshoppers. Isaiah uses the difference between you and a grasshopper to illustrate the difference between God and you. He's saying that this is what you're like to God. Look at that grasshopper. This is the creator-creation distinction. This is Isaiah's language to describe an indescribable God, but he has more. He goes on. God is also great in his wisdom. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did God consult? And who made God understand? Who taught God the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed God the way of understanding? Now, I want to help all my brothers in the room out. Uh, to all the husbands in the room, uh, when your wife says, hey, do you plan on leaving those clothes on the floor? I uh, want to help you out. She is not asking a question. She is making a statement with that question, right? 
Uh, This is what you call a rhetorical question. It's a question that is so obvious that, that it's not actually asking anything. It is saying something. That's a rhetorical question. And this is what Isaiah is doing. He says, who who has counseled God? Who has done that? Answer, no one. No one has taught God anything because he has always known everything. God has never come to a problem and stepped back and just like, oh, man, I think I'm going to have to call in a professional on this one. I'm going to have to grab some grasshoppers and see what they think about this. God has never had that moment. Part of what God being great means is that he knows best and he does best in every circumstance. It's part of what it means for God to be great in his wisdom. He knows best and he does best in every single circumstance. There's never been a moment in the history of the universe where God did not know best and do best. God is great in his wisdom, but Isaiah has more. God is also great in his wakefulness, in his wakefulness. Human beings are like batteries. It's so crazy. For every 16 hours we're up and doing a thing, we need eight hours of recharge. We gotta be plugged in for eight hours to sleep so that we can get up for another 16 hours and do a thing. And then we have to be plugged back in. We're we're like batteries in that way. And our need for sleep is one way that God humbles us, showing us the difference uh, between creation and creator. It's one way he shows the difference between him and us. We cannot function without sleep. We get tired. We get worn out. We get thin in life without sleep. But not so with God. Look at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. No recharge. Everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. Or as Psalm 121 said, he, he, never, he never sleeps nor slumbers. This is our God. He is always awake. He is always energized. He's always refreshed. He's always ready. He is always at work in this world. Always, in every moment. God is great in his wakefulness. But Isaiah has more. He goes on to show us that God is also great in his sovereignty. Now, to say that God is sovereign, here's what that means to say that. It means that all things, everything, all things are under his rule and authority. Nothing exists outside of God's rule and authority. Nothing happens without passing through the hands of God. This is what it means for God to be sovereign. And I love how one pastor said it. He said, it's not merely that God has the power and the right to govern all things, No, God is sovereign means that he does so always and without exception. So look at uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Look at verse 10. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his his arm rules for him. In In other words, Isaiah is saying, Hey, will you please behold and see your God? Look at him. Your God is strong. This is what Isaiah is saying here. 
He, he can do whatever he wants. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Or Job in Job 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah is saying, look at that God. Your God is strong. He is so strong that his plans cannot be blocked or barricaded by anyone or anything. Look at verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Isaiah is saying that God is greater than the greatest nations. In fact, Isaiah is saying that the rise and fall of nations is not by chance, but by choice. God's choice. The rise and fall of nations are under the control of God. Verse 23, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Isaiah is saying God is not only greater than the greatest nations, God is also greater than the greatest people. And this isn't some kings that Isaiah is talking about. This is every king that he's talking about. It's God who plants them, God who grows them, and then it's God who blows upon them and they wither and they're gone. He is greater than the greatest people. Isaiah goes on in chapter 46 to say that God planned the end from the beginning. In Isaiah 46, uh, Isaiah says, hey, do you know why birds hunt? Because God tells them to. Hey, do you know why waves crash endlessly? Do you know why that happens? It's because God tells those waves to. This is what it means for God to be sovereign. All things, everything, all things are under his rule and authority. All things. Let me just give you the, sort of the biblical landscape of this. All things are under God. God is over nature, according to Psalm 135. God is over the grass growing, according to Psalm 104. God is over every disaster, according to Amos chapter 3. God is over the work of Satan, according to Job 1. God is over the fall of sparrows, according to Matthew 10. The rolling of dice, according to Proverbs 16. The slaughter of his people, according to Psalm 44. The decision of kings, according to Proverbs 21. The affairs of nations, according to Daniel 2 and Job 12. The acts of men, according to Ezra chapter 7. Even the sinful acts of men, according to 2 Samuel 24, Genesis uh, 45 and 50 in Acts chapter 2, the failing of sight according to Exodus chapter 4 verse 11. When and where you live, it's not by chance. It's under the control of God according to Acts chapter 17 verse 26. Your gifts and talents according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Your physical appearance and personality are not by chance, but, but under the direct control and choice of, of God according to 
to Psalm 139. The sickness of children, according to 2 Samuel 12. The loss and gain of money are under God, according to 1 Samuel 2. The suffering of saints, according to 1 Peter 4 and Hebrews chapter 12. The hardening and softening of hearts, according to Exodus 4, Romans 9, Joshua 11. The completion of travel plans, according to James chapter 4. The repentance of souls, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2. The gift of faith, according to Philippians 1. The pursuit of holiness, according to Philippians 2. The growth of believers, according to Hebrews chapter 6. The giving of life and taking of life, according to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And the crucifixion of his son, according to Acts 4. All things are under his rule and authority. There is nothing... Not one molecule in the universe that is outside of God's rule and authority. Nothing escapes his control, his plans, and his purposes in the world. Now, let's take a step back and ask the question. What does the good news of Jesus do to God's greatness? What does it do to the greatness of God? And this is really amazing to consider. It's really meant to electrify and capture your heart. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus, do to the greatness of God? Here's how we might say it. The gospel takes our great God and turns him into our good dad. That's what it does takes our great God and turns him into our good dad. Because of the the good news of Jesus, God, this sovereign, great, wise, never sleeping, always working, holding the, uh, the, the oceans in his palm, right? That God, this great God looks at all of those that are in Christ, that are his sons and daughters, and he looks at them and makes this promise to them. My greatness will always be working for your good. That's my promise to you, God says. Because of the person and work of Jesus, my greatness will always be working for your good. You you mean when I get the job? Yes. You mean when I lose the job? Yes. You mean when my life is just going Great. I mean, I just could not imagine things going better in my life. You mean at that point you're working for my good? Yes. You mean when I am down in the deepest valley of darkness? Yes. I promise you, my greatness will always be at work for your good. Part two. So why does that matter? Why does that matter? Well... If that's true, if God's greatness will always be working for your good, here's what that means for your life. You don't have to be in control. You can take a deep breath and you can relax. Let's just put those two truths together. God, this great God who is also our dad, right? This amazing all-powerful God, this great God who has promised, I will always be working for your good. This God is great, so we don't have to be in control, grasping for control, working for control. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Let's just receive that from the Lord today. God is great, 
If you're in Christ, he is great for you, working on your behalf right now. He is great for you, so you don't have to be in control. See, the sovereignty of God so often turns into a theological debate, and it's not meant to be a a point of theological debate. It's meant to help you in your practical, everyday living. That's what it's for. The sovereignty of God is for Monday when chaos comes, for Tuesday when your life falls apart. That's what the sovereignty of God is for. See, all of us live in either one of two worlds. We either live in the real world or the one that we've made up. But those are the only two options. It's either the real world where God is in control of all things or it's in the make-believe world where we're in control of all things. We're we're all living in one of those two worlds. They're they're the only options. And this is is where it just gets so uh, humbling for all of us. Our daily behavior betrays so often the, the stunning contradiction between our confessional beliefs. God's in control of everything. Yes, we sing it, we, we say it, all, all of those things. And then our functional beliefs, like what we're depending on Monday as we go to work, what we're depending on Tuesday as we're parenting. There's so often often this gap between our confessional and functional beliefs. Uh, This is why the Puritans used to say that we're we're partly all unbelievers until we die. Uh, We all have this tendency to live in that make-believe world, that world without God, without the decisive doer who happens to be our dad, Uh, that world where everything is just left up to us and just blind chance. We have a way of gravitating toward that make-believe world. Or we could say it this way. We're all prone to what we might call control idolatry. We're all prone to that. And control idolatry, uh, it's often called a source idol because there are a hundred forms of idolatry that, that sprout out of this one seed. Control idolatry. I'll give you some examples. Let's take the fearful person. This is the person who just lives with a lot of worry and anxiety and fear. I mean, they're looking at at the amount of money in their life and, oh, do I have enough? How how are we going to get enough? What are we going to do? What about tomorrow? What about next month? What about when when my leg gets amputated? What about when all these things happen? Just fearful. And if it's not money, it's, oh my gosh, my kids, what's going to happen to them? How are they going to turn out? Are they going to be hurt? Or what's going to happen to my kids? And then if it's not kids, it's our country. Oh my gosh, our country's imploding. What is going to happen if my political party loses this next election? All hope for life is lost. Really? I, have we ever just asked ourselves, is that true? I mean, that would be true if there were no God who raises up kings and disposes of them, who raises up nations and sinks nations. It would be true if we were living in the make-believe world where it's all kind of up to us and blind chance. But the real world has a God who's in control of every single detail of our life. The weed of worry, though, 
springs from that seed of control idolatry. That, that idol of control whispers to us, God is not strong enough. God is not wise enough. God is not loving enough to care for you. So if you want safety and security, it's going to be found in that growing IRA, the size of your bank account, your kids turning out okay, the country kind of going in the direction you think it ought to go. That's the, the, where your security and, and safety is going to be found. But listen, that's a lie. Your security and safety will never be found in those things. God is infinitely strong, infinitely wise, and his heart is bursting with love for you. God is so capable of caring for you, come what may. How about the I refuse to rest person? You know, the person always grasping. They, they can't stop. They can't sleep. They're always trying to, to get another step ahead and to figure out another thing and to do another thing. They're just, they just cannot ever be present. They cannot turn it off. They're, they're always working. The weed of refusing to rest springs from the seed of control idolatry. The idol of control whispers to us, God is not strong enough, wise enough, loving enough to care for you. So your safety and your security will be found in your work for you, not God's work for you. So you better get out there and make it happen. You better get out there and do it. You better get out there and, and get to work. But it's a lie. God is infinitely strong, infinitely wise. His heart is bursting with love for you. He is so capable of working for you when you take a nap, when you sleep, when you Sabbath. I love what one pastor said. He said, God is not nearly as impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all of our anxiety on him. Hear, hear. Yes to that. God is not impressed with you burning the candles at both ends. God is impressed by you living with a peaceful trust in his sovereign care of your life. Take the risk-averse person. The weed of risk refusal springs from the seed of control idolatry. Now think about your life with Jesus. Jesus is constantly pulling you out of your safe little box of control where everything goes okay and everything's managed and everything's all right in there. He's constantly pulling you out of that to all sorts of new adventures, to befriending a neighbor and opening up your mouth and talking to, about Jesus with them, to giving generously to his plans and purposes in the, in the world. Life with Jesus is one risky step of faith after another. This is just what life is like with him. But that idol of control is constantly whispering to us, God is not strong enough, wise enough, or loving enough to care for you if it all goes bad. And for your next step of faith, he is not gonna meet you there. There's no way he's gonna meet you there. So your safety and your security will be found by keeping your life inside of that little box that you can control where everything's managed and everything's gonna turn out right and there's no uncertainty and you know how everything's gonna turn out. It's constantly whispering that to you and it's a lie. God is infinitely strong, 
infinitely wise. His heart is bursting with love for you. And that God, he is so capable of caring for you when you take the next risky step of faith. He's so, the fact that God is in control is meant to free you to say yes to every single thing that God would put out in front of you, regardless of how risky it is. And, And we could keep going. We could talk about the angry at God person. We could talk about the prayerless person. We could talk to the, or about the bitter at others person. All of those things are springing from that one seed of control idolatry. But here's the big idea. I just want to make sure this stays front and center. Here's the promise that Jesus is giving you today. God is great for you. So, so you don't have to be in control. You don't have to keep your life managed with, without any uncertainty. You don't have to be in control because God's doing a really good job of it. He loves you. He's caring for you. He is always working for your good. So you can take a deep breath and relax. You can enjoy your life with God. Listen, in the real world. I mean, this is what Jesus is inviting some of us to do today, to leave our make-believe world and come on over where he is in the real world where he is in control of all things. He's just inviting you to that life where you can enjoy him and the world that he's made you to live in. God wants you to be able to breathe easy, to relax, to enjoy him today. Okay, so if this is all true, I wanna finish here. If, if what our hearts need is to see this, Like our hearts have to to see the person and promise of Jesus. If that's true, how do we help our hearts see? How how do we help it see this promise? Well, here would be my simple sort of encouragement for you. If you want to help your heart see, here's what you can do. You can find a promise and then preach it to yourself. Find a promise. They're contained in passages in the Bible. Find a promise, then preach it to yourself. Now, when I say preach it to yourself, I mean that you are rehearsing that precious promise so that your forgetful heart stays fully alive to it. That's what we mean by preaching it to yourself, that promise, the good news of Jesus to yourself. You're preaching those precious promises so that your heart stays fully alive to that promise. It's it's not just your confessional belief, but it's your functional belief on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, in every moment of your life. Find those promises and then preach it to yourself. So I want to finish by doing that with you today. Now, if I had one place in the Bible that captures this promise, God is Great for you, so you don't have to be in control. If I had one place to go, one passage that contains this promise and really just sort of puts it in a very preachable sort of phrase, it it would be Romans 8, verse 31. Romans 8, 31. Why don't you repeat this after me? There's two parts. I'm going to say the first part. You repeat it with me. Then I'll say the second, and you repeat it with me. It's, It's memorizable. It's sticky. It's easy to to, to say. Here it is. Repeat this after me. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, who is Romans 8.31 for? Answer, for fearful people, uh, for people who are refusing to rest, for people who are refusing to take the next risky step of faith, for, for people who are embittered against God, embittered against others. It's for people who feel beaten up and bruised by life in a fallen world, or we could just say it this way, it's for people like you and me. That's who Romans 8.31 is for. Now, why do people feel beaten up and bruised? Why do people feel fearful and worried? Why, why is that? Well, Paul is not saying in Romans 8.31 that no one is against us. Paul is no fool. Paul knows there are plenty of things amassed against the people of God. Satan is against us. Our flesh, that, that old part of us that's still mistrustful toward God, it, it's against us. Death is against us. Things like a virus are against us. Sometimes people can be against us. There are a million things against us. There's so many things against us that, that if we're sane and we're only seeing the things that are against us, we should be scared to death. But we should be fearful. But here's what Paul's doing in Romans 8.31. Or 8, he is lifting our eyes above what's against us to the one who is for us. That's what he's doing. So will you say it with me this time? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's say it again. If God is for us, who can be against us? When God promises my greatness will always always, without exception, be working for your good. Here is what he means by that. God means that no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for you. That, that's what he means when, when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? When God is saying, this great God says, I will always be for you, working for your good. This is what he means. No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for your life. Can you say it with me again? If God is for us, who can be against us? When you get fired at work, when you lose your job, when your boss says no more, and when you're tempted to look at him and think, that guy just ruined my life. If God is for us, who can be against us? There is no person that can block God's plans for your life. No one can do that. Why? Say it with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? When you have been abused, violated, wronged, no evil, no sin done against you can block God's plans for you. You can read Genesis chapter 40 through verse, or chapter 50 
Uh, Joseph has a story to tell that will show you that. That no evil, no sin done against you can block what God wants to do in and through your life. Can you say it with me again? If God is for us, who can be against us? When you've sinned in a way that even shocks you, you can't believe it's that bad. And you are completely sure that you have ruined your life. You need to remember that no sin done by you can block God's plans for you. Aren't we thankful that we have a great God who is a dad like that? No sin that you have ever done is going to ruin your life. Can you say it with me again? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's the amazing thing about the sovereignty of God. It makes servants of everything. The sovereignty of God makes evil a servant, tragedy a servant, your sin a servant, others' sins a servant. See, none of those things can block God's purposes for your life because God is sovereign. All of those things bow before our God. And God bends each of those things into the very things that will accomplish his plans and his purposes in your life. So can we say it again? Just let's rehearse the promise and preach it to ourselves. If God is for us, who can be against us? No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for your life. So may God grant us hearts today that can see it, that can see it, and may the Holy Spirit do his work in us of forming us, amen? Let's pray together. Just there where you are, I wanna give you a few minutes here to allow the Lord to speak to you, to press into you what would be most helpful to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that, that's just Paul saying, if God is for us, who cares what's against us? That, that is God saying, I, I'm gonna take my great might and it will forever, for the rest of your days, be at work for your good, come what may. Just wonder how many of us need to hear that today to rehearse that today if God is for us who can be against us and I want to just highlight that word if if God is for us God is not for everyone if you're not in Christ God is actually against you but God invites you into the category of if he's for you and we get in on this amazing, stunning promise by turning from our sin and throwing our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, just there where you are, you can hold your life up to God in the best way you know how and say, God, save me. I am trusting in the person and work of Jesus, and this promise is yours. If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? Oh God, would you help us believe it? Would you give us hearts that can see it? God, open the eyes of our heart. Open the eyes of our heart. God, would you, would you capture our heart by these things? And it's in the great, the great name of you, our God and Dad. Amen.